Father, we praise you that you are at work among the nations of this world. Father, you are at work in dark places and difficult times, bringing grace, bringing hope to people who are truly trapped in darkness, being held in ransom. And God, I I thank you for literally having showed up in that specific kind of situation in Haiti. Thank you for the release of our gospel partners in Haiti, Miss Delva and her driver. Lord, we thank you that they're safe, that they're okay. Lord, that they have a story of your deliverance to tell. But God, I can't help but thank you for how that is such a vivid picture of the work of Jesus for us. That Christ came to pay the ransom to set us free from the sin that's held us captive. Lord, thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that our eyes would land on Jesus, that we would be amazed by his grace, that our hearts would be filled with faith and trust in him. And Lord, as we begin this new series of studies on the book of Daniel, we're very excited to see what you have to say to us. And we understand that, Lord, if you don't teach us, we won't learn. God, I feel overwhelmed as I've been looking at this book for so many months now. And I know I'm not sufficient to teach your word today, not in my own ability or power. And so I invite the Holy Spirit, God. Holy Spirit, work in me. Make me more than I'm, I'm able to be in my own power. Help me teach. And God, we pray, Holy Spirit, work in those who listen. God, work in our hearts and teach us your word. And may we leave not talking about the pastor of this church. May we leave talking about the glorious king of heaven, Jesus. So we look to you today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen, church. Would you go ahead and be seated and open your Bibles. And I pray that you have a Bible there on your person. Open it to the book of Daniel. This morning, we're going to start a brand new verse-by-verse study, which is our normal course of study, verse-by-verse through books of the Bible. And this morning, we're beginning the book of Daniel. And I've got to tell you, I'm so excited about the book of Daniel. I know I've been dropping hints over the last several months, and I am so excited to begin this study that I am not going to give you an introduction, no funny jokes or stories to tell. We're going to start the book of Daniel. You know how? The best way I know how to start by starting. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, let's read the Word of God. Verse 1 says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now stop right there, okay? Verse 1 sets the context for the rest of the book of Daniel. And it's important for us to establish because we'll refer to this context over and over again through the next 12 chapters of our study. Here's the context. Two kingdoms are in conflict. All right, Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah, and it's under siege by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. This specific event occurred in 605 BC. It's an established historical fact. But in some ways, this single event in chapter 1, verse 1, represents a dynamic that occurs from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. In a sense, this kingdom conflict between 
Judah, the people of God, and Babylon, the kingdoms of this world, that conflict stretches from beginning to end, not only of the Bible, but correspondingly, the entire history of the world. And so here's what I want to do. I want to start by giving you a bit of biblical historical context into Judah and Babylon, these two kingdoms in conflict throughout the book of Daniel. So let's start with Judah. In Genesis 13, you might know God chose a man named Abraham to be the father of a brand new nation, the nation of Israel. And in that choosing, God made a promise to Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through the descendant that would one day be born from Abraham's descendant, a promised one, a person who would come and bless all the nations. That person is Jesus. Jesus blesses the nations of the world, the people of this earth, through the work that he did at the cross when he died on behalf of our sin to restore us to a right relationship with God so that we could be part of the kingdom of God, the people of God. So as you take that first initial hint at a new nation coming into the world in Genesis 13, then you trace that all the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament. What you see is that the Old Testament is really the story of God preserving and providing for Israel so that he can keep his promise that he made to Abraham and bring Jesus into this world. So that puts Israel, if you know anything about the Old Testament, it puts Israel into a very special place as God's chosen people. God even had a temple built somewhere on this earth, only one temple. And you know where he placed it? Right in the middle of Israel, right in the capital city, a place called Jerusalem. That temple in Jerusalem was the one place on the entire planet where God chose to uniquely manifest his presence and display his glory. And so you have this nation, this kingdom, whose God is the Lord, have a special relationship with their covenant God. But what you find as you read the Old Testament is that the people of Israel are a massively dysfunctional family. They would have appeared on Jerry Springer had he had a show two and a half thousand years ago. They are continuously doing bonehead sinful things and they rebel against God and they live constantly in turmoil with one another because of their sin. As a matter of fact, it gets so bad in Israel that the nation is divided eventually into two separate kingdoms, okay? The northern kingdom keeps the name Israel. Well, the southern kingdom takes the name of its most prominent tribe. What was the name of its tribe? The southern kingdom. It's Judah. There's where Judah comes in as an expression of the nation of Israel. It's the southern kingdom. And it's in Judah that Jerusalem and God's temple were located. Okay, And you find that in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, that God preserves a faithful remnant So as messed up as the whole dynamic is, there's a faithful remnant that lives as God's holy people inside of Judah. And so, even though Judah in many ways was really jacked up, Judah and Jerusalem represent the people of God and the place where God desires to manifest his presence and display his glory. Okay, lock that into your minds. 
Judah, Jerusalem represents the people of God on this earth and the place where God desires to manifest his presence and display his glory. Okay, that's such a dominant theme that when you look at the Bible, you see the Bible actually ends with a picture of what's going to happen someday in the future when Jesus comes back. In Revelation chapter 21, one of the last chapters of the entire book, there's this future scene of future events. God comes down to this earth. He desires to dwell among his people. He's already defeated all of his foes. Satan is cast into hell forever. And God creates a glorious new dwelling among his people on this earth. He manifests his presence. He displays his glory in a new kingdom on this earth. And do you know the name of that new kingdom? The new Jerusalem, right? That's Jerusalem, Judah, the people of God, the place where God desires to manifest his presence, display his glory. That's Judah. Now you've got Babylon, okay? Babylon also has its roots in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 11, sinful people in this world desire to build a tower up to heaven. What they want to do is demonstrate their power, they want to actually manifest their power and display their glory. In essence, what they're doing is trying to overthrow the rule of God on this earth by building up a tower to heaven and becoming their own gods. And so in a very real way, that tower was like a temple on the earth, a temple to themselves as their own gods. Well, you guys know probably what happened. The real God shows up And the charade is over, right? He stops that tower project. And then he does something very important. He confuses all of the languages of the people. You see, he puts an impediment into their way. Whereas they were united in their sin in a way that they, as all the people of the earth, could work together to accomplish any sinful goal that they might have in mind. God sets an impediment down and confuses their language so that they're having to be separated into different groups because of that language barrier. And that's how the nations of the world were scattered around the globe. Does anybody know the name of the tower that was built? The Tower of Babel, right? That word Babel means confusion. It's where people were confused about who is God and where God confused their language as people. And the city of Babel, where that tower was built, built, became one of the new nations on the earth. Do you know what the name of that nation was? Babylon, right? And throughout the rest of the Bible, that kingdom of Babylon, and you can look through human history and find this bearing out, that kingdom of Babylon grows stronger and stronger and more influential. And throughout scripture, the kingdom of Babylon represents a dynamic, a group of people. That dynamic is the dynamic that started in Genesis 11. Babylon is the kingdom of confusion. Where proud, sinful men are attempting over and over again to overthrow the rule of God in their lives. Babylon represents all the way through the end of the Bible, the kingdom of confusion where people are confused about the fact that God is God and they are not. And they attempt to overthrow his rule in their lives and they will not succeed. As a matter of fact, Revelation 18 
One of the last scenes in the Bible, one of the last things that happens in the history of this world before God destroys this earth and recreates it into the new Jerusalem. Revelation 18 says there's going to be a resurgence of the kingdom of Babylon. That spirit of Babylon is going to increase throughout this world until Jesus puts it to a final end. It's going to increase to the point it will dominate all of the kingdoms of this world. It will be a kingdom, a global kingdom that opposes God's work and God's people. It's going to seduce the minds and hearts of people, luring them into sinful rebellion, causing them to turn their backs on God, to think they're their own gods. They're the ones who should decide how life works best. So literally, guys, from the beginning to the end of this world, the kingdom of Babylon is in conflict with the kingdom that God is establishing among his people. Here's why that's so important. You're going to see that theme all throughout the book of Daniel. And that means that Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, is not only the historical account of what happened between Babylon and Judah in 605 B.C. Verse 1 of chapter 1 is a vivid display of a conflict. It's part, one stage of a battle that is part of a greater war that will exist from the beginning of this world all the way till Jesus comes again. And that battle is raging today. The kingdom of chaos and confusion and godless sin is attacking the kingdom of God. And we have just spent 10 minutes. We're one verse into the study of Daniel We may be here forever. So let's keep reading, all right? Verse 2 says this. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, we're going to revisit this verse a little bit later in our study, a few chapters down the road. But there's one really important detail there in verse 2 that God is showing us right out of the gate. It's that the Lord is the one who gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, God did that because he was using Nebuchadnezzar to punish the sin of Judah. In chapter 9, we're going to talk specifically about the sin of God's people that's being punished in this act. But here's the point that we're being given right out of the gate. It's this. Verse 1, we have all of these kingdoms in chaos, a battle, a war that's filled with confusion and conflict and chaos. But while the kingdoms of this world are in conflict, listen, God is in control. You hear that? That's one of the primary themes of this book. You're going to hear it over and over and over again. Because Daniel is going to see firsthand in in a front row seat that God is in control. And Daniel's friends and Daniel's enemy will see that God is in control. And Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's sons and the people of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will see firsthand that God is in control. And do you want to know what I pray that we'll see? Wait for it. God is in control. Because if you're anything like me, you feel like you look around this world and see nothing but a world in chaos. 
Just scroll through your phone news app and you're going to see a world spinning out of control. Our nation fell off a moral cliff a long time ago, is in free fall, headed for disaster as we speak. We see a world that's out of control. Whether it's Russia or Ukraine or China and Taiwan or wildfires and heat waves or COVID and monkeypox or inflation and broken supply chains or Democrats and Republicans need I go on. We live in a world that seems out of control, but I want to give you good news this morning, and so does the Word of God in Daniel. You're not going to read this in the headlines today, but the news is true, and you need to know it. God is in control. Listen, you can go ahead and take a great, big, deep breath. Of all the chaos in the world today, God is in control. He is the living Lord over heaven and earth. He's the living Lord over you and me. And guys, that's actually where the spirit of Babylon comes in. The spirit of Babylon is working today in part of that historic conflict that ranges from beginning to end. The spirit of Babylon is working today to pressure and persuade you and me to turn our backs on God, to live like we're in control, to live like the rulers of this age are the authorities in control. And I want you to to show you something here. I want to show you how the spirit of Babylon attempts to gain control over the people of this world, including God's people, so that we stop living like God is in control. You see it right here, verse 3. It's the rest of this chapter. Verse 3 says this, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave their names Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And can I just take a moment and enjoy the pronunciation of all those words? Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Here's what you see as you look at those verses. Keeping this in context, two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of God being attacked by the kingdoms of this world, the godless spirit of this age Seeking to turn the hearts of men and women, yours and mine, away from God to live as though he's not in control over us. He's in control over nothing and maybe doesn't exist. In that context, what you see in these verses is a startling description of Babylon's strategy. How is Babylon seeking to turn the hearts of people away from God? How's Babylon at work in the spirit of this age? Well, let me just show you four strategies that Babylon uses to turn the hearts of people against God. And I just, wanna, I just want you to think, does any of this sound familiar at all? Here's the first strategy. Babylon targets the next generation. 
In verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar specifically asks to bring the young people to him. You know, Vladimir Lenin, the Marxist leader of Russia, said, Give me a child for the first five years of his life, and he will be mine forever. You know, the godless ideologies of this world are after the hearts and minds of our kids. And you may disagree with me on this, but as I look out over our world, I see the godless ideologies being infiltrated into the children of our community. From Marxism, which is a godless ideology, from Marxism that's being couched inside of a conversation about critical race theory to transgender adult entertainers hosting so-called family-friendly events at strip clubs where children are brought to observe with their parents. That's happening in our world today. The spirit of Babylon is at work in this world targeting the minds and hearts of the next generation. The second strategy, Babylon uses education for indoctrination. Verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, teach them the literature of, now notice, the Chaldeans. He uses education to indoctrinate them into the culture of the Chaldeans. Another word for the Babylonian citizens. You see what he's doing? He's not trying to make these young people scholars, is he? He's trying to make them Babylonians. And so he's using education for indoctrination. Anybody see any of that going on? Guys, in the name of education, elementary children are being exposed to pornography. College professors are advocating for the normalization of pedophilia. The only things off limits in America's classrooms are ideas like the existence of absolute truth and morality and the existence of a very real God who gets to determine both. Education is used for indoctrination. Number three, you see Babylon undermines the purity of people in the name of support. In verse five, you need to notice, the king assigns these Jewish young people a portion of the food and wine that he drinks. Now, here's what you need to know. In ancient kingdoms like Babylon, the food that was served to the king was often, if not always, offered as a sacrifice to the false gods before the king would eat it. Even more, the diet of those kings were things like pork, Things like unclean food. Guys, that was in direct violation of God's law he gave to the Jews in the first five books of the Bible. It would have caused them to be ceremonially and morally impure before God. So Nebuchadnezzar was acting as though he wanted to generously support the well-being of these young people. Here, you take some of my food. It's the very best food that money can buy. But what's he really doing? He's undermining their purity as defined by God. You see that happening anywhere? Listen, the reasoning behind allowing confused children to change in locker rooms of the opposite gender is that we need to support these confused kids. And in the process of so-called support, we're undermining the purity of every child in that locker room. Same old song and dance as Babylon in 605 BC. Here's the fourth thing you see. Babylon seeks to confuse 
our identity. In verse 7, Daniel and his friends are given new names. Daniel, which means God judges, gets a new name. Belteshazzar, that means protect the life of the king. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. His new name, Shadrach, means command of Aku, which is the moon god of Babylon. Mishael means who is like God. His new name, Meshach, means who is what Aku false God is. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. His new name, Abednego, means servant of Nabu, which was another pagan God. You see what's happening here? Guys, we could, I could preach an entire sermon. I thought about doing it on just the impact of the change of identity that happens in the truth behind those names. But here's what's happening there. It's an unveiled attempt to get these young men to forget who they are and who God is. It's an attack on their identity as people who were created in the image of and for the glory of God. You think there's any of that going on today? Our world is in an identity crisis. We can't identify anything according to God's design anymore. Unborn children are identified as a clump of cells Children are told that their gender identity isn't settled or firm. It's fluid. We're literally redefining our language to the extent that a Supreme Court justice isn't willing to define what a woman is. You know what, friends? We are living in Babylon. And the spirit of this age is blinding people to who God is And what he's made us to be. And it's not even subtle. It is a frontal attack on God and the people he created in his image and for his glory. The enemy of God is using the same playbook that's been around since the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Since the book of Daniel in 605 BC. And what will continue to grow until Jesus comes again. And the objective of the enemy is to get you to turn your back on the God who created you, who's in control of this world, and who loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins. So the question becomes, how do we live faithfully when we live in the middle of Babylon? How do we stand against the pressure of a godless Christless, sinful culture. Well, that's what the rest of chapter 1 is written. And I'm going to read the rest of chapter 1 at one time because you're wondering if you'll ever get to lunch today. Verse 8 says this. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's table be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter. Notice that phrase, fatter in flesh. Only time in the world, that's a compliment. Then all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there. He was there in that place of authority. He was in that place in the world until the first year of King Cyrus, nearly 70 years later. So here's what we see as insight on how we live faithfully Inside of that battle that's been raging, the conflict from the beginning of the world till Jesus comes again. How do we live faithfully? We see it here in two faithful figures. There are two faithful figures in that text I just read. The first one's really clear. It's Daniel. He's a clear example of what it looks like to be faithful. That's why many of your translations might have a heading over this section that says Daniel's faithfulness. His story is preserved in the Bible so that people throughout the rest of time would be able to read this passage and see a picture of what it looks like for a man to be faithful to God in the face of a godless culture. Verse 8 says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He's respectful to authority. He's reasonable in his conversation. All those are important things to notice, but he's determined, and I love this. It makes my heart beat fast. When I read this section of scripture, I hear the soundtrack to Rocky playing in my mind. Daniel determines, I will not defile myself no matter what. God is God. Not Nebuchadnezzar. And my life belongs to a God who's in control of this universe and in control of me. Daniel purposes, resolves, makes up his mind. No matter what, I will not defile myself. It makes my heart beat fast. What do we need in this age? What do we need in this community? What do we need in this world? We need men and women in this room whose hearts beat fast when they hear someone say, I have resolved that no matter what, I will not defile myself by turning my back on God. So we see this picture of Daniel's faithfulness right here This beautiful place. But you need to know this text is written specifically so that we will notice that Daniel is not the only person being faithful here. This passage shows us another one who is faithful in the midst of a godless culture. Who? God. It's not just that Daniel is faithful to God. It's that God is faithful to Daniel. Notice verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor 
and compassion. Verse 10 says, and God gave them learning and skill. God is at work. He's being faithful. He's taking care of Daniel. He's providing for everything that he's, he needs. He's doing what only God can do. In the face of a godless culture, God is faithful to his people. And here's what you need to see in Daniel, and you'll see it all throughout Daniel. The faithfulness of God to us is the foundation for our faithfulness to God. We love because he first loved us. We will only be faithful in measure to the fact that we depend and rely and rejoice on the faithfulness of God. And that's our big idea in chapter one. Faithful people place their faith in the faithfulness of God. Guys, this story Like every story in the Bible is not primarily about a brave young man and his friends who have courage to stand up to the most powerful man in the world. This story, like every other story, is the story of their God. Their God who's faithful and proves that he's stronger and better than the most powerful man in the world. It's a story that God wants to write with your life and my life. We live in this godless age But we will not remain faithful to God by convincing ourselves that we are strong enough and courageous enough and brave enough. We aren't enough to stand against Babylon. We are only going to remain faithful as we are convinced to the core of our being that our God is real and strong and good and better than anything else in this world and will always be faithful to us no matter what. Guys, we won't be faithful to God by focusing Focusing on just how evil the enemy is, we will be faithful to God by focusing on and trusting in the goodness of our God. Faithful people place their faith in the faithfulness of God. And I want to show you as we close just two quick ways that we see how Daniel placed his faith in the faithfulness of God. First, Daniel lived like God is faithful in his word. See, in verse 8, Daniel resolves that he's not going to defile himself with the king's food and wine. That word defile means to become morally or ceremonially impure or unclean. And the question we should be asking when we read that passage is, how would Daniel determine what kinds of food would make him impure? Well, I already hinted at it earlier. In the law of Moses, God gave clear and specific instructions, namely Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. He prescribed certain foods that the Jews were to avoid because they would make them ceremonially unpure in his sight. And Daniel knows that's what God's word says. And he believes that God knows how life works best. You want to know how you see that? Well, you see that because he tells the steward to test him in 10 days. He's convinced that God knows best and that God's ways are right and come with blessing. So he says, hey, let's give this this a trial run. And he says, God will do what's right because his ways are best. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. You find the Bible describing itself this way. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all of the word of God is breathed out by God. And notice this phrase, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you see that? The word of God, all of it is profitable. You know what that means? It's good for you. It's good for you. And the word of God will equip you for every good thing, every good blessing God desires to bring in your life. God's word is good for you. That's another way of saying God, by giving you his word, is being faithful to you to tell you how life works best, to show you what will bring you blessing and satisfy your heart and make your life meaningful and fill you with joy. God's word is his faithfulness faithfulness and goodness to us. For instance, when God tells children to obey their parents, you need to know this, kids. He's not trying to make your childhood miserable. He is helping protect children from themselves. Here's what I mean. God is using people like my mom to keep kids like me from doing their best to act out evil Knievel's death-defying jump over Caesar's palaces on their bicycles which is literally something I attempted to do. Lining my brothers up on the ground, let's see if I can jump over you like evil Knievel and praise God for the command, children, obey your parents. His word is protective, not restrictive. And you know, every precept in the Bible is like that. It's good for you. It's God's faithfulness to you. It's his intention to bless you and bring you meaning and joy and lasting satisfaction. So as we're navigating the pressures of Babylon, the question we should be asking over and over and over again is this. What has God said in his word, the Bible? What has God said? Not what does culture say? Not what does Twitter say? And I know I really pronounced Twitter there, didn't I? Wow. Not what does Facebook say? What does God say? Not even what does your pastor say? What does God say? And then resolve by faith to live like you believe that what God says is best for you. Whether it's about your marriage, whether it's about divorce or culture or sexuality or personal conduct or philosophy, anything else that you can name, the Bible is our final authority. For those of you who are visiting with us, we believe that to the core of our being. That's why we tolerate in a room like this, a guy like me standing up and spending so far 35 minutes and 13 seconds teaching the Bible. Why? Because it's the word of God and our final authority. And it's best for us. It's best for us. So we do what God says. It's best for us. So here's my question before we move to the second and final thing. Are you living like you believe that what God says in his word is best for you? It's another way of saying, are you living in faith and obedience? To God. Because it's one thing for us to talk about that section about Babylon's strategies, to see how that's playing out in political agendas and in public schools and on social media. It's it's one thing for us to talk about that and be like, oh boo, boo. It's meaningless. 
If we aren't the kind of people who in faith and humility come to God's word and say, God, what are you telling me to do? How are you calling me to live? And then in faith, stepping out in obedience. Are you living like the Bible is God's word in authority over you? Because you believe God knows what's best. Here's the second final thing you see. Daniel not only lived like God is faithful in his word, he lived like God is faithful in his work. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He said, test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. So he goes on this vegetarian diet. And we'll talk later about how that's no longer biblical because the Lord opened up. No, I'm kidding. He gave us these two teeth. He meant us to meet, eat meat. Anyhow, he says, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's table, his food, be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So look what he does here. Daniel asks for a 10-day trial period, right? Well, that's not a lot of time to distinguish yourself in appearance and performance. And you need to know it's doubly more difficult when you're trying to fatten yourself up by eating vegetables and water and then being compared to people who are receiving the best pulled pork sandwiches in Brevard County, right? What's Daniel thinking? You know what he's thinking? He's thinking God has to show up and do what only God can do. And you know what he does? He leaves it to God. Now listen, that's not fatalism, that's faith. Fatalism is the belief that everything is predetermined, so nothing we would do really matters. That's clearly not what Daniel's doing, right? He's making good decisions. He's choosing to do what God says is right. He's living proactively in various ways, whether it's respecting the human authority that's over him or choosing certain wisdom points in his decision-making. He's doing all kinds of things, and at the same time as he's doing all these important and good godly things, he's trusting God to work in the places and ways that only God can work. He's putting his faith in the faithfulness of the work that only God can do. And guys, there are 10,000 applications for the sake of time. I'm just going to use one. Parents, You are called to make God-honoring decisions in your home. You're called to teach your children the Bible, to point them over and over again to our great big God, but you need to know and you need to live like there is a work that only God can do in the hearts of your children. You cannot make them believe. You cannot make them make good choices. God has to do a work that only God can do. And one of the ways that you live faithfully in your home is by laying your children down before the Lord and trusting him to do what only he can do. And this is one of the places where we are most susceptible to the influence of Babylon. Do you remember what's at the heart of the Tower of Babel? People trying to live like their God. And if The enemy can't cause you to think that God is a liar or doesn't exist. He will subtly 
confuse your living and thinking to make you live like you think you've got to do God's job. That's essentially making yourself God. And in every area of your life, whether it's your parenting or your marriage or your citizenship, whether it's how you engage in our nation during these dark and difficult times, guys, there is a work you need to know only God can do. And we are called to live like we believe that God will do that work and what he chooses to do will be best. Here's what you need to know. In the book of Daniel, we're going to see this over and over again. People who say, I know only God can do this work. I know if God doesn't show up, it won't be done. And in the first half of the book of Daniel, you find these near martyr experiences over and over again. You find Daniel, you find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You find them in these situations where if God doesn't show up in a lion's den, they're all going to be destroyed. And they trust that God will show up and he'll do what's right. It's called they believe. Believe and depend on the faithfulness of the work of God. You know what the second half of the book of Daniel is about? It's about countless of people who will live throughout the rest of the history of time who don't experience near martyr experiences. They actually become martyrs for the sake of God. They live like there's a work that only God can do and they lay their lives down before them and they say, God, you have to do what only you can do and whatever you do will be right. And there are times in the lives of God's people where there will result in their death. That's what we'll see in the last six chapters of the book of Daniel. And what it means then for us is that we have to build this foundation in our lives. That if we will resolve to live in faithfulness to God, we have to believe that he is faithful in his word, everything he says. And we have to believe that he is faithful in his work no matter what he does. And resolve to leave it to God. Guys, we're called, I know a lot of us, are concerned about our nation. And we're concerned about the direction that America is going. And we should be concerned. Uh, it's coming out more and more. I know in, in the things I'm saying publicly, concerned about the direction of our nation. But guys, there is a work that we need to understand 